Henry K. Henry K. Production. Broadcasting live and direct from the rolling red hills on the outskirts of Kingston, Jamaica. From a magical place at the intersection of words, sound, and power. The red light is on. Your dial is set. The frequency in tune to the Rootsland podcast. Stories that are music to your ears. People sometimes laugh when I tell them my best friend in college was my city, Washington, D.C. Confident enough to let me get lost in my dreams, generous enough to let me find my way back home, and the opportunities were endless. My first internship was for the Arlington County Barrier Removal Program. We helped low-income disabled individuals get government grants to make their homes more accessible. It was sometimes sad, always rewarding. This semester, I was being mentored by music pioneer Dr. Dredd and an offbeat cast of characters with crazy knowledge of music, frat house mentality, and a deep love for what they did. Imagine a mashup where the TV show The Office meets the movie Animal House, and you can understand why it was hard for me to motivate for my constitutional law class after work. Most of the day I spent in the warehouse fulfilling and shipping orders with a street-savvy young Jamaican named Carson. He was scrappy and hardworking. After a long day at Ross, would throw on a soccer uniform and go practice with his local semi-pro team. Carson had been in the States about a year and never shed his heavy Jamaican accent. That mixed with his rapid-fire delivery made him nearly impossible to understand. Yo, Henry, you may say Henry. Oh, you for saying I understand Pato after all this time, brother. That don't make no sense, King, man. I don't know if they'll ever have an app that will translate that. As if hearing him wasn't hard enough already, from the moment he walked in, non-stop dancehall pumped from the turntable in the warehouse. Dancehall was booming on every street corner, from Miami to the Bronx, thanks to immigrants and second-generation Jamaicans who imported it from back home. With up-tempo beats and lyrics that glorified gangster life, guns and girls, it was quickly embraced by the hip-hop community. And what the urban kids listened to, the suburban kids soon followed. I told Carson it gave me a headache. Don't this dance all music we are on the street. That my advice. You hear that? The only time he turned it off was when we went for lunch at the local Caribbean bakery, Sweet Spice. Yo, brother, what you say? You ready to go grab some lunch out of Sweet Spice? Murder in a day in a dog. Now it's rare to find a meal on a student budget that qualifies as a culinary masterpiece. But all morning long, I would look forward to lunchtime and a freshly baked Jamaican beef patty nestled in between a warm, doughy piece of sweet cocoa bread. The only thing better, washing it down with a cold ginger beer. A taste so delightful, so complete, it let you forget all your problems. Of course, not everyone had the same problems. Hanging out with Carson outside work, it was easy to see the pressures that a young immigrant faced being on their own. Just a few miles away from the peace and sanctity of my quiet college campus, there was an alternate reality being played out. A world where low-income workers live paycheck to paycheck in cramped apartments. A world of dangerous neighborhoods and shady landlords. And through it all, I never heard Carson complain. Even after he wired most of his money back home to Jamaica, he only gave thanks for what little he had left. It taught me a lesson I couldn't learn in school. 
Late afternoon at Ross was when the original G, Tim, the sales director, would drift downstairs from his office with a stack of records under one arm, a bunch of CDs in his hand, and a half-smoked spliff in his mouth. In a hostile takeover of the turntable, he would tell Carson to turn off the dancehall crap and get ready for the real thing. 100% old-school roots reggae. Picture Tommy Chong meets Seth Rogen, full hipster beard, colorful tashiki, and a pair of beat-up Birkenstocks. Okay, maybe he wasn't a great dresser, but Tim was a music connoisseur, and his vast knowledge of reggae is why Dr. Dredd tapped him as sales director. Samples and demos would arrive daily, as producers were looking to get their material a coveted slot in the Ross mail-order catalog. Tim would listen intently in order to educate himself and his buyers on the current releases, the quality of the production, and the content of the material. I was just lucky enough to be there and listen. It was during one of these afternoon sessions that an announcement came over the intercom. There's a customer holding on line one. Tim walked over to the phone. It's Brian from Colorado. When he heard that, he stopped in his tracks and looked at me. Intern, you can get it. Tell him I say hi. Brian from Colorado's backstory was not entirely clear. I heard he placed orders from a record shop in Boulder and usually stayed on the line as long as possible, schmoozing with whoever answered. It was never confirmed whether he actually worked at the store or just hung out there and ordered the music for himself. I picked up the line. Ross Records, this is Henry. All I could hear at first was some loud music and a muffled voice yelling to hold on. Yo, Henry! It's Brian from Colorado, Wagwan Star. Hey, Brian, how could I help out? I was wondering if you guys had the uh, the Pinchers song in stock. It's called Agony. It's on King Jammy's label. And then he actually started singing it. It goes, 100% love, we got the 100% love. 50-50 love, but I want no 50-50 love. Agony, agony, agony in the mirror. Agony, 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 why? <laughs> I looked over at Tim in disbelief. But he already had his headphones on and tuned out my conversation. I asked Carson if we had the song in stock. He shook his head no as he left for the day. When I told Brian, he was disappointed. Oh, man, that's too bad. I have a show next week. And um, I kind of wanted the instrumental version, you know, the B-side to perform it. Out here is hot like fire, bro. Trying to make him feel better, I told him to perform the song a cappella. He was just on speakerphone and everybody thought he sounded great. Although that wasn't meant as a request, he started belting out the song one more time. What, just like, 100% I love, we got the 100% I love. 50-50 love, and I want no 50-50 love, we got the agony, 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 and I'm Like that? He was a little strange, but as we spoke, there was something familiar about him. He kind of reminded me of me. He was getting into promoting shows in Colorado, and was an aspiring singer. At some point in the conversation... He boasted that he came from a line of Judaic cantors, so music was in his DNA. I asked him how his parents felt about him going from chanting the Torah to singing pinchers. Brian started preaching. He believed that reggae appealed to a disillusioned generation, that there were millions of young people from around the world who had taught the values and traditions of their parents but we're still left spiritually unsatisfied. We went to our temples, churches, and mosques and read our prayer books, yet there was still something missing, what Brian referred to as the soul of a religion. 
He said it was only natural that a force like reggae, with rich biblical imagery and powerful lyrics, would be able to bring ancient stories to life for a modern generation. Brian called it a reggae awakening. And he didn't mean that white kids from the suburbs were growing dreadlocks and becoming Rastafarians, although some were. He meant that this music was causing people to look deeper into their own religions and discovering a higher consciousness they never even knew existed. I get the vibe that you're drawn to this music out of some kind of spiritual thirst, man. Maybe you're working at Ross Records for some higher purpose or something. I don't know. Now I was starting to like the kid, and he may have been right, but I didn't appreciate being judged by someone who barely knew me. Sorry to disappoint you, Brian, I shot back. My quote-unquote higher reason for working here is six credits for my college degree. And the spiritual hunger was actually a girl named Debbie. I went on to tell him about my teenage crush in St. Thomas and the song Your House. But before I finished, I heard a cynical snicker on the other end of the line. And then he cut in. Hey, Henry, when's the last time you actually listened to the song Your House? It's one of the greatest love songs, man. But it's not really about a girl. It's about God. So you just proved my point. Listen, man, I got a role, but remember, the stone that the builder refused shall be the head cornerstone. And then he hung up. And that's how I met Brian from Colorado. I started this series with culture and I've not stopped talking about him and them throughout the series and tonight's guest is the very man himself, Joseph Hill. Thank you very much for coming in, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a... It just even that much speech was an honour. Your style, it was just there from, from, from day one, from when you started. Yes, and I'm so happy because I wasn't, I wasn't made a singer, I was born a singer. Have you ever made a record that isn't a conscious record? They all seem... To, to have, you know, black consciousness at the very sort of forefront of what you do? Well, fact is, to the unconditional love that I have for music, I ain't got no time to make a song which isn't taking out a proper message because, to my knowledge, a record, a record is, is a statement for eternity. I believe that we are the ones now who are writing the Bible for the future generation. That's an interview with the singer Joseph Hill of the reggae group Culture on BBC Radio. The reason I love it so much is because in one sentence it says everything about him you need to know. He was born a singer, has an unconditional love of music, and believes the purpose of his work is to bear witness for future generations. While Culture is a legend whose music is loved worldwide, his origin story as a reggae superhero is even more legendary. In the music industry, the term shut down the club is when an artist causes so much excitement, fire marshals arrive and shut down a venue. It's pretty common. What's not so common is when an artist creates so much excitement that he shuts down an entire country. That's where Joseph Hill's story begins. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Michelle Norris. And I'm Melissa Block. 30 years ago, a song brought the Jamaican capital Kingston to a standstill. It was called Two Sevens Clash.
In the mid-70s, Culture is a young vocal trio led by its singer-songwriter Joseph Hill. He's a humble spiritual Rasta that lives in the hills. His house is so far in the country that you can't even drive there all the way. You have to park your car and then walk across a creek using a wood plank board to get there. One day, while riding on a bus, he has a vision and writes a song based on a prophecy by Jamaican Pan-African philosopher Marcus Garvey, whose writings were instrumental in the birth of Rastafarianism. Garvey predicted that when the sevens clash on July 7, 1977, the world will be spun into chaos and the ruled would rise up against their rulers. Culture releases the song Two Sevens Clash in 1976, his retelling of the Garvey prophecy. The song is a massive hit. It captures the attention of Jamaica and propels culture onto the world stage. I don't think I've ever heard a song about the apocalypse that has a catchier hook. But as the date approached, apprehension is in the air. It was like a Rastafarian version of Y2K. On July 7, 1977, the island of Jamaica shuts down. The streets of Kingston are eerily quiet. As businesses and shops close, kids stay at home. They say even Kingston's famed rude boy gangsters were afraid to go out. While Garvey's prophecy was not fulfilled, something did happen. Jamaican society finally recognized the power and influence of Rastafari. And Joseph Hill emerged as a reggae superstar. In 1987, 10 years after his smash hit, culture had toured the world, influenced groups like The Clash and Sex Pistols, and after Bob Marley's death in 1981, he helped carry reggae's torch. Now, I was going to carry him, at least from the airport to the studio. For a young reggae fan, that's a dream come true. Earlier in the day, Dr. Dredd called me into his office. I was nervous at first. For the past few months, I was yapping away on their toll-free line, something I was instructed not to do. It wasn't only Brian from Colorado, but I just love talking to other music fans in general. People calling from all walks of life, different stories, but all shared a love of reggae and a passion for music. Dr. Dredd asked me if I could do him a favor and pick up Joseph Hill at the airport. His flight had been delayed, and I needed to bring him to a meeting at Lion and Fox Recording Studio. As it turns out, it was Dr. Dredd who did me the favor. There won't be any money, but when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going. Joseph Culture Hill descended the escalator and came into view. I knew immediately I was picking up a rock star. He was wearing a green Puma tracksuit with the jacket zipped all the way to the top and a gold pendant neatly displayed around his neck. His ring-covered fingers held a black leather briefcase in one hand and a carved wooden walking stick in the other. On his head, one of those straw hats that Vietnamese rice farmers wear revealed shoulder-length dreadlocks. A look I can only describe as casual African dictator meets off-duty ninja. Mr. Hill, I'm Henry, your driver. Dr. Dredd sent me to get you. He pounded his chest with his fist. Blessed love, Enrique, Rastafari, I live. When we got in the car, he pulled out an address book from his briefcase and opened it up and pointed to the name Basie. I and I have to make a quick stop before I and I reach the studio. 
As I started the car, the culture cassette I was listening to on the way to the airport automatically started playing. It was a rookie move, and I wasn't sure what his reaction would be. Yeah, I have musical taste, yeah. I guess he liked it. No one loves music more than I, you know. For the next 30 minutes, I was treated to a tiny desk concert meets carpool karaoke, as Culture belted out tune after tune at the top of his lungs until we reached his friend's house. We pulled up to a brownstone that was in the process of a renovation. It was in an area that was being gentrified, but still felt a little unsafe. Joseph was greeted by a Rasta, with the dreads neatly tucked into a colorful wool knitted cap. Greetings, Joseph. Hey, what one A long time, Rasta. Jano, great for city eye. He had on a white painter's outfit and a reggae-colored fanny pack. He gave culture a hug, and he gave me a fist bump. Well, go on, Henry. Nice to meet you, man. Them call me Basie. Hey, Basie. I'm guessing you're a bass player? Me used to be a bass player, no? but now me a painter. The brownstone had a crew working inside to the rhythm of Roots Reggae. Everyone stopped to greet culture when he came in. The place was gutted, with scaffolding set up around the walls, tools and equipment scattered around an open floor plan. There was a circle of makeshift seats with crates, containers, and stools in the center of the room. Joseph sat next to Basie, and some of the others followed. Basie screamed upstairs, Family! Bring the chalice, come make culture bless it up. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what happens next. When someone shouts for a chalice in a room full of Rastas, Basie pulled out a big bag of weed from his fanny pack. Using his hands as a mortar and pestle, he grinds the butt into a powder. The scent permeates the air like a dank perfume. Then a worker dressed in paint-covered overalls comes downstairs, holding what looks like an industrial-sized mayonnaise jar, with a large wood bowl protruding from the lid alongside a clear piece of flexible plastic tubing. The proverbial chalice, I presume. I watch as Basie carefully fills up the bowl and positions himself above it. He strikes a match and lowers the flame to the herb. Immediately, Joseph takes a series of short, hard draws from the plastic tube, like someone does when they are siphoning gasoline from a car. Each toke creates a ringlet of smoke rising from the bowl. Then one giant exhale produces a massive cloud of smoke that fills the room. He seems to recite a short blessing. Give thanks for the fire I live. He places his thumb over the end of the tube to keep any smoke from escaping. And then he calls me over. Hey, we are saying, hey, watch your man. I and I wouldn't trust no driver. We're not, we're, hey, we're not guided by Ja. Now I'm sure my college advisor would have not approved. And as a justice student, I had the utmost respect for the law. But somehow, this moment felt more profound than just a bunch of college kids passing around a joint in the dorm. So I accepted his offer. I started coughing like an amateur. And then I heard Basie say, Be careful, my youth. <laughs> The guns are strong. Basie, 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 your timing's a little I guess that's why you're painting houses instead of playing bass. I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles. And I can see for Line and Fox Recording Studio was located in a low-key industrial building off New York Avenue in Northeast D.C. An aromatic blend of patchouli, spicy Jamaican food, and pungent weed greeted us as we walked into the lobby. Joseph was quickly ushered into a studio, past a group of people who were chilling out, burning a spliff. 
A thick wooden door with a glass window separated the lobby from the recording studio. When the door opened, you could hear the sound of music burst through, only to go silent as it closed again. I stood alone in the corner near the front entrance for a while. Figuring I was no longer needed, I headed out to my car. Then there was a knock on my car window. They wanted me in the studio. Stepping into the inner sanctum of the control room was like walking into the locker room of your favorite sports team. I felt like a little kid getting a peek into a secret world. The studio was brighter than I imagined. Well lit, cool and clean. Almost felt sterile, like a hospital. With complicated equipment flashing lights of every color. The musicians were scattered around the room, with their instruments in hand. Except for the drummer, who was in a separate room behind a large glass panel. The band was the Roots Radics, one of the most respected and prolific backing bands in reggae. Dr. Dredd and the engineer Jim Fox had their backs to me, as they were fine-tuning dials on a large mixing board that looked like it belonged on a spacecraft. One by one, each musician played individually as the engineers meticulously adjusted the recording levels of each instrument. Seeing Dr. Dredd outside the office in the studio was like running into a teacher outside of school. He seemed so different, more relaxed, in his natural element. One day at Ross Records, someone brought Dr. Dredd a gift. It was a tall bowler hat, the kinds that Rastafarians usually wear, with a large bowl designed for dreadlocks to be tucked in. It was fuzzy, with red and black plaid design. I remember thinking at the time that no white person should ever wear a hat like that. But Doc was rocking it tonight, and he couldn't look any cooler. When the levels were perfect, the engineer yelled red light. A tape machine started spinning in the corner, and the drummer counted in the band. I wasn't sure what hit me. The contact buzz from the thick cloud of weed, the savory smell of brown stew fish, or the thud from Style Scott's kick drum. But when I saw Dr. Dredd sitting behind the mixing board with a giant grin, gripping his captain's chair like he was taking off in a rocket, I decided, that's what I'm going to do with my life. Culture was dancing to the rhythm in a trance-like state. His movements were mystical. Goosebumps covered my arms, and for a moment, it felt like the sonic vibrations of the bass were lifting me off the ground. I was hoping this feeling would last forever, but eventually, the song ended. Culture broke the silence. Yes, I trust the judge. When the music hits, you feel no pain. When the music hits, you feel no pain. The rest of the night... It's still a bit blurry, blurry, blurry. Rootsland Podcast is produced by Enrique in association with Vicebox Studios. Make sure that I then click the link below, you know? Make sure you click the link below. Like, share, and subscribe. So join the Roots Gang on Rootsland. <laughs> yes, Rasta. <laughs> tell you, tell you, tell you. Don't worry about a thing. Because every little thing is going to be all right. I can see for miles and miles